Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. Those are the first three verses of Psalm 135, which along with Psalm 134, the Psalms appointed for today, Thursday, November the 24th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look today at the book of Zechariah in chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. And and it, it's, remember that that this part of Zechariah is eschatological, so it, it's pointing to the end times. It's not a time uh, during the life of the prophet, um, and we know that partially because it points to Jesus. Um, it clearly, it, verse chapter 12 and 13 both, have clear references to Jesus, uh, not by name, but, but it, it's implied from our end. So anyway, and then also we're going to be in Luke 19, uh, verses 11 to 27, and then Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23. So in the Zechariah passage, uh, it begins with, on that day, which would be the day of the Lord, the end of times, because we've already looked, and he's already talked about that the nations are coming in chapter 12, the nations coming against Israel. And this is a time when the exiles are returning from um from Babylon and from Egypt and the other places they had gone uh, in the time of of Cyrus, the king of Persia. So this is their return from that exile, and now he he has talked about a a later time when the people are apostate, and there's a division between the people of Jerusalem, which is in Judah. It would be sort of like, I live in Asheville, which is in Buncombe County, right? So it, it would be like Jerusalem, which is in Judah County. It's not the exactly right, but it's the similar thing. This is the land, the portion of the land allotted to Judah included Jerusalem. And then he sees a division there between the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem. Even though they're brothers— in the sense that they all come from the same family, the family of Judah, the patri- one of the patriarchs of the 12 tribes. And so what he sees is this division between the two of them, and then suddenly the nations come up against them, and then the Lord goes out and fights the battle, and everyone is unified because they see the concern and the love of the Lord for one another. The people that they're divided from, they see the concern and the love of the Lord to rescue all of them. <laughs> so it's, it's Armageddon is essentially what they've what he has seen. So on that day there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And and there's an old hymn that used to be sung I have no idea whether whether very very traditional musical churches sing it still or not. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. <clears throat> um, and and it, it speaks of that fountain uh, of mercy and love. That that results in you being covered in the blood of Jesus. So you're cleansed by the blood of Christ, and that's that's what he's seeing. It's a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Zechariah likely didn't see that fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That's the rest of that lyric. But that's exactly what he says. But he's not. he probably didn't see a fountain filled with blood. That would cleanse. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. Also, I'll remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. Does that, I mean, Zechariah are a prophet. 
So what he's talking about specifically are these false prophets, and there won't need to be any more prophets, at least, in, in, in the in the eschaton, in, in, the, in the age to come, in the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone, this is amazing to me right here. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. I mean, does it get any worse? Than, I mean, can you imagine anything worse than that? That, that a father and mother would would kill a child because he he prophesied falsely you know it jesus says though i mean we, we have to be discerning and we have to be wary and we have to not allow that kind of false prophecy in the church and there's been a lot of false prophecy in the church over the last two years i'm going to be perfectly honest with you about that there have been a lot of false prophets in the church over the last two years People who who swore that Trump was was going to be put back into office, and then they suggested, well, they're going to go back, and it'll happen in March, the traditional time before Abraham Lincoln, when presidents were were actually inaugurated, and all this other stuff, and it's just insane, absolutely insane, and it says more about them than it does about the Lord. It's about their Savior being a man. Now, I look. I'm not I'm not a, a guy who, who hates Donald Trump, but come on, really? I mean, things are what they are. I don't know why people could believe things like that. But anyway, it is what it is. And I, but, but false prophets are in our day, is what I'm saying. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He'll not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he'll say, I'm no prophet. I'm a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are those wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. In other words, they're going to be rejected. They're going to be, these prophets are going to be rejected automatically. People are going to have the kind of discernment necessary to know immediately that's a lying spirit. Would that that were true in the church today. <clears throat> Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And there's a huge truth in that. We have have substituted leaders in the church for relationship with God. We've somehow accepted that as okay. And people can't stand on their own. They don't know the word of the Lord. They only know the little bits and pieces that they're mistaught in the church. It's the reason certain perversions of the gospel are so well-received in so many places. Because it fulfills the wish dream of the person who hears it. And they're encouraged and inspired to, to what? To seek the kingdom of God? To find their treasure in heaven? Mm, no. I'll turn my hand against the little ones in the whole land, declares the Lord. Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and a third shall be left alive. There's only going to be a remnant. And I'll put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. And Jesus says similar kinds of things when he talks about that the ones who, who are not bearing fruit are going to be thrown away, and those who do bear fruit are going to be pruned so that they can bear more fruit. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. And, and it's absolutely true that the Lord constantly winnows us, and he constantly chooses between us. We see people fall away all the time. They were never his people. They came for the wrong reasons. They believed the wrong things. And when, when those things didn't come to pass, they were disappointed and they left. Well, 
we have to be careful who we're listening to. We have to be very careful who we're listening to, lest we be led astray and lest our faith fail because we put it in men rather than in the Word of God. In the um, gospel today, Jesus, remember, he's, he's just brought Zacchaeus back into the fold, restored him, called he called himself to repentance, and he made restitution. And again, repentance is more than just confessing your sins. It's where you've done harm. It's going out and making that harm right. It's confessing your sins to the Lord, but to the extent that you've sinned against people, it's going to those people and making it right. It's one of the things that... that um, <clears throat> Alcoholics Anonymous has right. You, you don't just sin against God. You primarily do, and you can get forgiveness from him, but it's, but it's also a necessary step in repentance to go to the person or persons you have sinned against and confess those sins to them. And if they forgive you, fine. If not, you've done what you needed to do. But to the extent that you've harmed them in some way, that's, that's a tangible harm, then, then it's your responsibility to fix that and to make that right. So if you've stolen from them, Zacchaeus says, look, if I've stolen anything from anybody, I'll return it fourfold, which is more than treble damages. He's increased his own punishment voluntarily. <clears throat> and he was going to give half that he had away and give it to the poor. He saw the value of the kingdom. And so now, here we go, and Jesus says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He wanted to dampen their expectations. He wanted them to have right expectations. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. So they're going to tell the king who's giving him a kingdom, we don't want this man to reign over us. <clears throat> when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Now he tells a similar parable in another place where three particular servants come along. And, and other Gospels give us this in, in sort of a truncated form. Here, it's pointing, again, as Zechariah did, to the eschaton, till the end of the age. So, so now this is, this is recounted for us in a very different kind of way. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a little, you shall have authority over ten cities. So I'm expanding the scope of your authority because you had a little and you did much with it. I mean, this this part of the parable is is just exactly like the parable that you're mostly familiar with. And then another one comes. The second one does. And he said, Lord, your mina has made five minas. So he's half as successful, but he's given a 50% return. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. And then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. I was afraid of what you'd do to me if I didn't do, you know, well with this thing. And so, hey, I'm giving it back to you. I, I kept it safe while you were gone. He said to him, I'll condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew I was a severe man taking what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow. That's what you know of me? It sounds like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, to be honest with you. So he doesn't know the love and the largesse and the generosity of the father. 
And here, it's the same thing. This guy has determined this, this man this, that he serves to be a severe man. And, and he has imputed characteristics to him that are certainly not on display so far in the parable. And he says, so you knew these things, right? Okay, so you knew th- that's what you knew about me. I'm condemning you with your own words. This is what you knew, and then this is what you did. Why didn't you put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have at least collected it with interest. So if you believed this, why didn't you act in concert with what you believed and provide me a return on it? I mean, you're an idiot. If that's what you believe, then why didn't you do something based on that belief? You, you didn't even act in accordance with your own beliefs. So he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, so he knows, he was informed about what, what happened with the, with the petition, who didn't want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So the, the, the three who have been given this thing, they at least come into the kingdom. But what do you believe about God? What do you believe? Do you believe that he's a severe man? Do you believe that he, he is primarily a man of judgment? If you believe that, then, then you, you should at least do something to avoid the judgment, is what he's saying. These guys knew who he was. Those first two guys knew who he was. And they went out and risked boldly and gathered a good return on it. So what he's saying here is, is that, that, oh, Ultimately, you don't want me to rule over you, and that's exactly the way some people treat God. And I'm, I'm talking mostly about people who are outside the kingdom now, the people that are described in Revelation as those who won't give glory to God, but they want to blame God for anything bad that happens. You know those people. How could a good God allow dot, dot, dot? It's, it's always that thing. They don't give him glory and honor and thanks and praise when all the good things happen. But they want to turn to this God they don't even believe in and curse him because things are hard. Well, things could be a lot harder. That's just a, that's the honest truth. So it's, it's what do you believe about God? How do you understand him? That should inform your life. You should be able to live with freedom and joy and thanksgiving and all that kind of stuff. If you believe in the God of the Bible, you should absolutely, in all circumstances, be able to praise him. And worship him, knowing his goodness and knowing his greatness. And his goodness sometimes stays his greatness because his greatness could result in absolute and abject judgment for you because of your attitude toward him. But, but his goodness allows you one more day, one more chance. And so with us, we need to be good at being those people who recognize how good God is. And we need to rejoice in his goodness in all things. And we, we've got to get better at that. If, you, if we want the world to understand that, then, then we have to first understand it. In, in the passage from Ephesians, remember Paul yesterday had just piled up for us all these um, things about the, the blessings that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. And now he says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus— and your love toward the saints. Those two things. You have faith in the Lord Jesus and you love the saints. Because of that, for this reason, because I've heard of this, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
not just because you suck air on the planet. No, because of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints. That should be the characteristic of Christians. We should have faith in the Lord Jesus and love his saints. He says, I don't cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And so it's that wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him that, that allows us to stand against the false prophets that Zechariah talked about, that allows us to recognize that and to reject them utterly and denounce them. If they're trying to speak in the name of the Lord and they're speaking lies, we need to denounce them. It's important that we do that. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what's the hope to which he has called you. What is the hope to which God has called you? Is it your best life now? John MacArthur says, if you're living your best life now, then you're going to spend eternity in hell because your best life awaits you. So Paul says, I want want your hearts to be enlightened, that you'll know what's the hope to which he's called you. And it's not an earthly hope. We just looked at that in Hebrews, right? All these people that, that, that came before, they died without realizing, seeing in their eyes, the hope that they had. But they, they knew that, the, that even though they didn't see that hope fulfilled, that, that that hope was still, nonetheless, sure and certain. It would come later, at the end of the age. He says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what's the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He said, you want to know what hope looks like? Jesus died on a cross, was resurrected from the dead, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's the hope. The hope is eternal life. The hope is is not just, you know, getting by in the age to come. No. It's blessedness abundance. It, it, that's exactly what it is. Jesus died an, an incredibly ignominious death. Was considered not to be fit to be buried among Jews because of the way he died. He died on a Roman cross, and so he was considered to be accursed according to the law. He was accursed for us, and because he was accursed for us and lived a sinless life, he was resurrected from the dead, raised to the right hand of the Father, appears at the throne in Revelation 5 as the lamb looking like it was slain, and prior to that, no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was found worthy to take the scroll from the one seated on the throne. Then the lamb looking like it was slain appears and does what? Approaches the throne and takes the scroll. So his worthiness wasn't determined on earth. His worthiness was determined in heaven. Earth, the religious people, didn't consider him worthy But God considered him worthy of all who had ever lived, everything that had ever been created, every human being, every angel. Only one was worthy. We have really bad judgment. We would still have bad judgment if we didn't have God's Spirit. And what he wants us to see, what Paul wants us to see right here, because Paul's not living for an earthly reward. He's living for a heavenly reward, and he pours out everything he has in order to receive that crown, and he knows it awaits. He knows it with all his heart. 
He has no doubt at all, and he bets his entire life on it. And that's what he calls them to. That's what he calls us to, to make the same bet in faith that Paul made, which is a sucker bet because I know it's true. So Paul says, no, it's a sure thing, man. It's a sure thing. I know. I know. And therefore, I'm giving up everything in order to receive that reward because I see the true value and I know what the hope is. And I want you to see it, and I want you to know it as well, he says. And then he put everything under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Don't be misled. Don't allow anybody to mislead you to expect the fulfillment of your dreams in this life. Don't believe it. That is a bad bet. Bet everything on the heavenly reward based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's all the proof you need that that is what actually matters. He laid aside equality with God, allowed himself to be put on a Roman cross in order to gain the kingdoms that Satan promised him on this side if he would only worship him. And he said, no, no. And he will receive those kingdoms throughout all eternity.